Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cass's Belly Project. As always, I encourage anyone with corrections or comments to write me at cassesbellyguy at gmail.com, or to use the contact Cass's Belly button at cassesbellypodcast.com. I always appreciate feedback from listeners and try to respond as quickly as I can. As far as corrections, I do have one from our last episode. During the defense of Kharkov, I said it was one SS Panzer Corps defending the city, when in fact it was two SS Panzer Corps, the same unit that would recapture it later in the episode. A minor mistake born out of just not editing closely enough. Anyway, in this episode, we continue where we left off last time. In episode 34, I teed up the Battle of Kursk, and now we are going to actually talk about the battle and its aftermath. Again, we're going to kind of breeze through the Eastern Front content, and pretty much come out of this episode in November 1943 along the Oost Front. I've been thinking about it, and I reckon the reason time goes so fast in the Eastern Front is because of the scales involved. Mostly we're talking about maneuvers on the army and army group level, rather than at the division or battalion level. Army-sized maneuvers take a lot of time to play out, so to get the full picture, you have to zoom way out geographically and chronologically. If we were to do a real deep dive and look at the Eastern Front at a division level, you could, but it would be torturously slow, and I think the forest would get lost for the trees to a degree. Maybe that's an idea for a podcast for someone out there. A whole podcast about the Eastern Front. You could just call it Oost Front. I'm not that guy, though. Anyway, there I go rambling again. Let's begin episode 35, Panzerfaust. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? pre-dawn hours of July 5, 1943, the rumble of tanks warming their engines and German crews conducting pre-combat checks could be heard. The morning was cool, as the nights are in the Russian summer, but the calm belied the absolute carnage that would be wrought in the next 24 hours and preceding week of battle. At 4.30 a.m., the tanks slowly began to roll forward. The men of Modal's 9th Army coming down from the north and the tankers of Hoth's 4th Panzer Army pushing up from the south. They expected to close the 100-mile gap between them and meet one another somewhere around the city of Kursk. The Red Army was keen on preventing their union. Within a few hours of crossing their lines of departure, Hoth's and Modal's tanks began encountering Russian defenses. Monstein's idea had been to overwhelm the Russian defenders with armor, but the Soviet defenses were deep and well-prepared. Dispersed among the crisscrossing earthworks and ditches were anti-tank batteries, delivering coordinated, orchestrated fire. In this manner, 
Soviet anti-tank artillery was able to concentrate their fire on individual tanks leading columns forward. The Red Army was well stocked with tanks and aircraft too. German commanders had never seen so many filling the skies, diving down to bomb and strafe their armored formations. The first line of defense would be penetrated though. A dozen of the brand new Tigers and Panthers, supported by Ferdinand assault guns, led the packs, followed by 50 or more medium tanks, and then the infantry to mop up and consolidate captured ground. As the Germans advanced deeper into Soviet defenses, Red Army commanders brought their tanks forward to meet the Germans in the minefields. 4,000 Soviet, many of them the modern and formidable T-34s, surged forward to blunt the advance of the Ostier's 3,000 tanks and assault guns. The casualties began mounting quickly. The staccato percussion of tanks firing and the rounds impacting, sometimes with thunderous success, filled the air almost as rapidly as machine gun fire. By the end of the first day of battle, the Germans had advanced 10 miles on both sides of the Kursk salient, but casualties had already begun mounting in significant numbers. Blown out tanks and burning trucks littered the landscape, their black, acrid smoke blotting out the sun in some places. Hulks of downed airplanes scattered the battlefield as well. Hundreds of Stukas and Yaks had been shot down in the dense air combat taking place over the tank battle below. The next day, General Rokossovsky attempted an abortive counterattack in the north against Modal, but it was quickly overwhelmed by the Germans' forward momentum. They pushed forward through the day and the next, so that by the end of July 7th, they had advanced 30 miles. The local defenders had been crushed, and victory looked close at hand, despite cripplingly high losses over the three days of fighting. Soviet reserves were being rushed in, however. The defenders in the north of the salient had done their job and absorbed German combat power. In the south, Hoth was making similar progress. By the evening of the 7th, his troops were roughly 20 miles into the salient and had punched through everything the Soviets had in store for them so far. The pace was slowing, though. On July 10th, Hoth brought up his reserve 10th Panzer and SS Viking divisions to maintain forward progress. The next day, Zhukov and Vasilevsky unleashed their reserves to beat back the Germans. On July 11th, the Bryansk front was ordered forward to strike at Modal's left flank, and on July 12th, the tank reserves were brought forward to strike Hoth on his right flank. These tank reserves would collide with the Germans east of the town of Prokhorovka in what would become the largest tank engagement in history. Roughly 900 tanks were present from each side, 100 of which were the modern heavy Tiger tanks. The T-34s raced into battle to close the distance with the Tigers that needed to come to a complete halt to fire their main guns. The Tigers' front armor was impenetrable, however, and by getting close, the T-34s could gain their flank and fire into their thinner side armor and rear armor, scoring kills. The swirl of battle raged throughout the day, and tanks' carcass piled up astonishingly quickly. 300 German tanks, including 70 Tigers, lay wrecked, often with their turrets flung yards away when their ammunition holds were struck. Fully half of the Soviet 5th Guard's tank army's armored strength was left behind in the destruction around Prokhorovka. Despite the heavy losses, the Red Army achieved its goal in the south as well. Hoth's tank strength was decimated, and the advance had been halted. As night fell, the fighting tapered off, and columns of thundercaps moved over the battlefield. The explosions of combat ceased, and the boom of thunder took its place, followed by a steady rain. By the next morning, the clouds had cleared, and the Germans licked their wounds. The events of the 11th and 12th of July 
were too devastating, so Hitler instructed his subordinates to wind down Operation Citadel. Monstein tried to revive the offensive, arguing that if he were given the remaining armored reserves, he could push on, further, and isolate Kursk. Hitler refused this request. Monstein had claimed before the battle that German armored strength was sufficient to break through the Soviet defense in depth, and had been proven catastrophically wrong. Hitler wasn't about to commit the military sin of reinforcing failure. The Battle of Kursk was terribly painful for both the Ostier and the Red Army, but the Red Army could make good the losses. German industry could not. In wake of the battle, many German formations were left combat ineffective. For example, the 3rd, 17th, and 19th Panzer Divisions were all at about 25% strength. It would be weeks or months before any of these formations would see significant reinforcement. The 1,000 tanks a month production quota that Guderian had promised never materialized. At best, a little over 300 would roll off production lines. A single day's fighting could potentially consume that many tanks, and did during the Battle of Prokhorovka. 160 tanks were lost to mechanical failure alone. Worse, the fighting at Kursk destroyed the Ostier's armored reserve. Until this point, the Wehrmacht in the east always had an armored reserve that it could commit in a crisis. No longer. Worse, the Allies had just landed in Sicily, and the rest of the Wehrmacht could no longer act as a recruiting area for the Ostier. Worse still, Hitler needed to reinforce Italy, and would pull men and machines from the east to bolster the now active Italian front. Though the Russians suffered high losses during Kursk as well, their industry was now almost fully mobilized, and their losses could be replaced relatively quickly. In a year, Soviet tank production would reach 2,500 a month, enough to not only replace losses, but to expand the Red Army tank force. With the balance of armor now decisively in Stalin's favor, the momentum of the Eastern Front would now shift irrevocably. To celebrate the victory at Kursk, Stalin ordered a cannon salute. 124 guns fired 12 volleys around the Kremlin to signal victory on July 24th. 1.3 million men had participated in the battle on the Soviet side, with 3,600 tanks, 3,100 aircraft, and 20,000 field guns. Their victory would be followed by an even larger counteroffensive, consisting of 22 armies, 5 tank armies, and 6 air armies. In the north, the Bryansk Front began a counterattack aimed at Orel, north of Modal's original starting line. The attack, led by Soviet armor, was halted by four panzer divisions. Combined with a southern counterattack aimed at Belgorod, these two local counterattacks forced the Germans to commit all of their remaining reserves to prevent a total rout. Having absorbed and then halted the German advance around Kursk, the Stavka proceeded to exploit their success on a massive scale. On August 3rd, the general counteroffensive began. North of the Kursk salient, the Bryansk Front continued its advance, and by August 5th, Orel had been captured, and by August 18th, the Kursk salient was no more. The Bryansk Front's forward elements were on line with the leading edge of the former salient. On the southern side of the salient, things were going equally well for the Red Army. The Voronezh Front pushed towards Belgorod and took it within two days. The Soviet 6th Guards Army continued to push forward from Belgorod and opened up a gap in the German lines, exposing an undefended gap that ran all the way to the Dnieper, 100 miles to the west. By the end of August, Zhukov's counteroffensive was gaining momentum 
and Manstein was quickly becoming overwhelmed. Manstein had 52 divisions at his disposal, with which to cover 610 miles of front, and estimated the combined strength of Soviet forces arrayed against him at over 250 divisions. The situation was not quite as bad as he had made it out to be, considering the enemy had experienced attrition at a similar or worse rates than he had in the preceding season's fighting, but factoring in losses, he was still probably outnumbered 3 or even 4 to 1. To remedy this, Monstein requested an additional 20 divisions to bolster his front. Hitler did not acquiesce. Instead, he did the opposite and declared that he would be withdrawing divisions to reinforce the now-threatened Italian boot. He did, however, allow for the construction of an east wall running from the Sea of Azov along the Dnieper and Desna rivers through Kiev to Puskov and finally to the Baltic. The fortified line would be an impressive fortification if it were ever constructed, but it was too late. The Red Army was pushing forward too quickly, and there was no time or space to construct any sort of barrier or fortification. Before August even ended, the Soviets had retaken Kharkov for the last time and crossed the Dunitz River. The success of the Red Army around Kharkov threatened not only Army Group Center, west of Kursk, but also elements of Army Group South, particularly the German 6th Army, still clinging to the eastern shore of the Kerch Strait. On August 31st, Hitler authorized a general withdrawal in the south. The Red Army was coming on too strong, though, and by mid-September, the southern sector was collapsing. The Red Army was at the outskirts of Kiev, the Desna River was untenable, and the Soviet West Front under Sakovsky had initiated an offensive aimed at Smolensk, an Army Group Center's area of responsibility. With the weight of the Red Army crashing down all along the Ostier's lines, Hitler ordered a general withdrawal to the line of the Pronya, Stolz, and Dnieper rivers. The ordered withdrawal quickly turned into a rout. German units raced west in a desperate attempt to cross the river before the Soviets did, and lost that race in many instances. By the end of September, lead elements of the Red Army had already crossed the Dnieper, some via vertical envelopment, or airborne operations. For the most part, though, Army Group South was safely on the western side of the Dnieper, the strongest natural obstacle in all of southern Russia. The summer of 1943 had been disastrous for the Ostir. Across a 650-mile front, they had been beaten back 150 miles. Monstein had attempted to scorch the earth as his men fell back, burning factories, destroying mines, and burning farms, to deny the Red Army and the Greater Soviet Union any utility from the recaptured land. But they could not destroy the road network. The Soviets were still able to advance along the simple, unpaved roads. For the Red Army, by contrast, the summer's fighting had been a wild success. They had taken all of the objectives laid out for them in the spring and pushed the front lines back to where they had been at the end of 1941. Not only that, but with the summer ending, the brief fall respite would give them time to prepare for continued offensives during the winter, their preferred operational season. The fighting of July and August had inflicted a high cost on the Red Army, in terms of both men and materiel, but those losses could be made good. Men, machines, and ammunition were flowing to stockpiles and depots throughout western Russia, and the Red Army was actually growing. By October of 1943, its strength was enormous. It had over 300 infantry divisions, over 100 armored divisions, not including hundreds of independent tank regiments and 80 independent tank brigades, 
13 mechanized corps, and an awe-inspiring amount of artillery. The Red Army loved artillery. They had six corps of artillery. That is an insane amount of artillery to be grouped together. In addition, the Red Army possessed 43 regiments of self-propelled artillery, 20 independent artillery brigades, and 7 rocket artillery divisions. To keep this massive artillery arm supplied, the Red Army expended 42 million rounds of ammunition in July and August of 1943 alone. Due to the advances made during the summer fighting, the Soviet fronts were renamed in the fall to better represent their areas of responsibility. The Voronezh Front became the first, the Steppe Front became the second, and the Southwest Front became the third, and the Southern Front became the fourth Ukrainian army. The Northern Fronts renamed the first and second Belarusian Fronts, and the first and second Baltic Fronts. In mid-October, as the first frosts of the Russian winter set in, the Red Army would resume its offensive westwards across the Dnieper and put its ungodly amount of artillery to use. They initiated their breakouts from the bridgeheads established in September with a massive artillery bombardment, utilizing 290 guns and expending 36 hours worth of ammunition in just 120 minutes. The barrage completely turned over the ground and destroyed many of the Germans' anti-tank guns and field pieces. Following the bombardment, the Soviet infantry rushed forward in their classic attempt to simply overwhelm the German defenders. After the initial waves failed, new formations moved up to continue the attack. These repeated frontal assaults only yielded about a mile of ground around the bridgeheads. Despite having learned many lessons in operational planning and armored tactics, many of the Soviet infantry formations were still green and inexperienced, but also filled with the least valuable conscripts. Were literate, physically robust ethnic Russians were sent to the Air Force, Guards Units, and Tank Corps, the infantry's ranks were filled out with the too young, too old, mentally infirm, and the various non-Russian ethnicities of the Far East. This led to formations composed of men who could barely point their weapons in the right direction, and only follow the orders, go there, and stay here. Despite some accounts depicting the Red Army as being fatalistic, I believe it had more to do with the composition of Soviet forces. This was not an army composed of highly motivated volunteers. Despite high losses and stubborn German resistance on the first day, the Red Army eventually made ground on the flanks of the Dnieper Bend. The center held, but in the south, Soviet columns advanced on the industrial center of Krivorog, and in the north, Marshal Vatutin took Kiev on November 6th. The capture of Kiev was a momentous occasion, which once again for a called for a multi-gun salute at the Kremlin. In the far south, on the Crimean Peninsula, the going was equally tough for the Germans. By November 30th, the German 6th Army was driven back, and the isthmus connecting Crimea to the mainland was occupied by the Red Army, and the German 17th Army was cut off. Hitler had refused to allow his forces to withdraw from the Crimean Peninsula, out of fear that it would yield air bases to the Soviets that could be used to bomb the Ploesti oil fields, his key energy supply. In the northern sector, the Belarusian and Baltic fronts were making steady progress as well. The advance westward to retake Smolensk had begun in August, as the Wehrmacht was reeling in the aftermath of Kursk. Smolensk had been under German occupation since 1941, and Stalin was eager to liberate it. Unlike in the southern sector, south of the Pripyat marshes, the front in the northern sector had remained stable for much of the war thus far, and was located on hillier, more uneven terrain. This allowed the Germans time to actually construct defenses. The Ostier constructed a deep, 
echeloned defense in depth to defend Smolensk that spanned about 100 miles of front east of the city. Three layers of defense composed of several trench lines and tank ditches themselves constituted the defense of Smolensk. Man-made and natural obstacles, of course, were incorporated into the defense as well. The western banks of the Dnieper and Desna rivers were fortified, as well as hilltops and urban areas. On August 7th, the Soviet army would begin the test of the German defense. The 5th, 10th Guards Army, and the 33rd Army assaulted the German lines and were quickly rebuffed. The German defenders were resolute and their fortifications strong. The lack of success caused Soviet commanders to commit the reserve, the 68th Army. The added weight of numbers helped push the offensive forward, and by August 11th, the Red Army had advanced about 10 to 15 miles along the axis of advance. For their part, the Germans conducted a sophisticated defense in depth and mobile defense. They always counterattacked against local offensives, which inflicted heavy casualties on the Red Army forces, but it was not enough to stop them. To help bolster the defense, three divisions were transferred to the Smolensk sector, which helped stem the tide, but was not enough to change the overall calculus of the battle. After the initial drive fizzled out, a more localized offensive by the Soviet 10th Army was launched against the southernmost strongpoint at Spazdamansk. Here, the Red Army had more success, and advanced six miles in two days. To exploit their success, the 5th Mechanized Corps was transferred to the sector, but the Luftwaffe successfully interdicted their advance, forcing them to retire. Regardless, the 10th Army was able to continue its advance and liberated Spazdamansk on August 13th. That same day, another local offensive was launched on the northernmost strongpoint, Dukovshina. Again, the Red Army troops were able to make ground, advancing about four miles in five days, but suffered heavy casualties to an energetic German defense. By the end of August, the general offensive against Smolensk had run out of steam, and the front was stabilizing along the lines established after the initial advances and two smaller offensives. Despite the large number of troops committed to Smolensk, the Red Army was unable to push forward to its objective without changing something. The offensive began without enough tanks, forcing commanders to over-rely on preparatory bombardment and infantry. Compounding this, much of the infantry was ill-trained, and commanders were awestruck by German tenacity and skill, causing them to freeze up. What the Red Army needed was fresh troops and more tanks. Thus, the 4th Tank Army and 8th Artillery Corps were committed to the second phase of the battle. The offensive was scheduled to resume on August 23rd, this time with much greater tank and artillery support. After some delays, the resumed offensive got moving on August 28th, with the attack at Yelnaya. About 40 miles southeast of Smolensk, Yelnaya was considered key terrain in defending the city. It was a crossroads with excellent defensive characteristics. The Desna River runs right through it, and hills overlook it from the west and north, not to mention the many swamps that surround it. Four Soviet armies were set against the town over a front of only 22 miles, creating an incredibly high level of troop concentration. They were well supplied, however, and properly supported. The attack began with a 90-minute artillery bombardment, followed by an all-out assault. This time, the Red Army was highly successful and advanced 16 miles on the first day. Of course, it was the tank troops who made most of this ground and the following day, the infantry formations had to move up and consolidate the ground, forming a salient 20 miles wide and 10 miles deep. The 2nd Guards Tank Army was dispatched to exploit this success, and themselves drove 19 miles into German lines on their first day of battle. Soviet troops were now nearing the town of Yelnaya itself, and threatening to encircle it. 
On August 30th, rather than risk becoming encircled, Wehrmacht troops in the town abandoned it and withdrew. With Yelnaya safely in Soviet hands, the final phase of the Smolensk offensive was ready to get underway. For the next two weeks, the front went relatively quiet as the Germans prepared their defenses and the Soviet formations planned their next moves. The Stavka believed Smolensk was now within their reach, instructed the Kalinin and Western fronts to initiate the final push on September 14th. The German defenders were completely overwhelmed, and within four days, the attackers had pushed 25 miles along a 150-mile-long front. The attack was going well, but Smolensk was still in German hands. The Stavka, not wanting to lose the initiative, ordered General Sokolovsky and Command of Western Front to take the city by the end of the month. Sokolovsky happily obliged. On September 25th, the battle for Smolensk itself began. Soviet troops crossed the Upper Dnieper and engaged in an all-night street battle, but by the next day, the city was mostly in Russian hands. That same day, the city of Yaroslavl was captured, and on October 2nd, the Smolensk operation was officially concluded. The Red Army had advanced between 60 and 100 miles in the sector over the course of roughly six weeks, and the formations involved were exhausted. They had achieved several goals for the Stavka, though. First, by driving the Ostir back, they relieved the pressure on Moscow and eliminated the threat of the capital city being taken. Second, the savage fighting in the northern sector diverted troops away from the fighting taking place in Ukraine along the lower Dnieper. With Smolensk captured, the northern sector would stabilize for a time. The Soviet units were too depleted and tired to continue offensive operations, and relatively mild weather in December meant that the soil remained boggy and unfrozen longer than usual, preventing serious maneuvers anyway. Now, the attention of both the Stavka and OKW would once again turn south to the fighting in central and western Ukraine. 